You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 153. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donald Riley. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. Apologies for the tardiness of this debrief. It is spring in the upper Midwest, which means that there is a lot of work to do outside to prepare for planting this season, pick up all the flotsam and jetsam of winter, as well as keeping up with all of my regular chores and responsibilities. And so I have been running all over the countryside this week, trying to uh, keep ahead, so to speak, of my responsibilities. So today is Friday morning when I record this, and I thought today then we would discuss tyranny, one of my favorite topics the past three years, and the question about power, the allure of power. Why do we all seem to inherently want more power, especially power over others? And what is it that leads one to become a tyrant? Maybe we don't have to elevate the conversation to the degree that we ask, why are earthly rulers tyrants? But rather bring it back down to earth, so to speak, to a more practical setting. Why are parents tyrants? Why are bosses tyrants? Why are teachers tyrants? What is it about the desire, the craving to control others that can lead an individual or a couple or a group to behave in such a way that they demand unconditional obedience to their every whim? And how do we then recognize it? How do we engage it? How do we overcome it and defeat it? And I think ultimately, as is usually the subtext of every episode, how do we ourselves not become tyrants as spouses, parents, bosses, and so on? One of the things that I find particularly particularly morally disgusting, loathsome, is when a martial arts instructor becomes tyrannical. My jiu-jitsu, my Muay Thai, my classes, my gym. And then they use that as an opportunity to demand obedience, unquestioning obedience over their students and perhaps other coaches. I've seen it, not in my own gym, but I have seen it and I have reflected on it in other gyms, but also in relation to other coaches and students myself. Because I think there is always that lure dangling in front of our faces that wants to take our confidence, our familiarity with our subject matter, our personality flaws and defects, and leverage all of those things together in such a way that when we are not in the right headspace, for example, or our hearts not there for whatever reason, we want to turn to the students and we want to say to others, not now, just do what I say, do what I taught you to do and quit asking questions. As if 
we are ourselves personally offended by the question or by a student saying, I don't think I, dis- I, I necessarily agree with this technique or how you taught it. The lack of humility, for example, can lead us to take a tyrannical stance in our view of other people. And so we'll start with our old friend Nietzsche, because that's a great place to start when talking about matters of power and tyranny, because of course his sister posthumously published, that was a hard one at this point in the morning, posthumously published some of his writings and they were entitled The Will to Power. And so if you do decide to read Will to Power, just be aware of the fact that Nietzsche didn't intend to publish that, it was unfinished. His sister, after Nietzsche died, had power over his estate, and she capitalized on that. Big C capitalized. She made money off of his name and off of anything that she could find to publish by Nietzsche. And I say be careful because his sister was also a Nazi. And I don't mean that in a general sense. Anyone who disagrees with me is a Nazi. I mean she was an actual Nazi. Her and her husband went to Bolivia, and they were married at a ceremony that involved Nazis. She was very close with Mussolini. She's a big fan of the whole Nazi movement. And so she took Nietzsche's writings and she used them and edited them and tweaked them, even adding her own words in places, to support the Nazi agenda, which is why you'll hear people after the fact accuse Nazism and Nietzsche of working kind of hand in glove with each other. Well, one, Nietzsche was dead by that point. So he couldn't have worked hand in glove with the Nazis. And number two, it was his sister, not him, that used his works, his thoughts to support the Nazi cause. And so I always want to put that provision in there of not confusing Nietzsche's philosophy and his writings with how they were exploited later to justify this demonic evil. So we can blame his sister for that, but not him. But Nietzsche then writes in The Dawn, neither necessity nor desire but the love of power is the demon of mankind. It's not our needs that are the bugaboo. It's not our desires that are specters that haunt us. It is the love of power that is the demon of mankind. You may give men everything possible, health, food, shelter, enjoyment, but they are and remain unhappy because the demon waits and waits and must be satisfied. Let everything else be taken away from men and let this demon be satisfied. And then they will nearly be happy as happy as men and demons can be. So you can give me food. You can give me shelter. You can give me good health and entertainment that I enjoy but I will remain unhappy if that doesn't describe our current culture in a nutshell. That sums it up perfectly. We demand everything, health, food, shelter, enjoyment, and then when we get all of it, we still claim that we are oppressed, that we are traumatized, that we are the victims. Why? What's at the root of that? Why burn down cities? Why participate in race hustling and gender hustling? Why push pedophilia and try to normalize and legalize it? Why do we demand that every app 
on our phone or on our screens constantly update and entertain us and keep us distracted? Why are so many people struggling to make personal connections with each other? Because you can give us everything that we could possibly want, and yet that demon, the demon whose name is power, he waits and waits. But he must be satisfied at some point because he is hungry. And so we will give up our health We'll become alcoholics, drug addicts. We'll become abusive towards ourselves and others. We'll put garbage in our body and call it food. We'll let the place in which we live fall apart and disintegrate around us and not lift a finger to keep it up. And we will chase, constantly chase, new and different Forms of entertainment for our enjoyment, no matter how perverse or degenerate those forms of entertainment are. And yet we're still unhappy. We're still unsatisfied. Think of your favorite song that you've been waiting for, and your favorite artist releases that first single off the new album, and you listen to it 10 times, 20 times, 50 times, and then you throw it aside. You're sick of it. You need the next new thing, the next single that's going to satisfy that hunger for new. It's not enough. Because the demon loves power, feeds off of power, needs power to be satisfied. And we will never be happy as men or women until our demon is satisfied. We must Find avenues that lead us to more power. This is why in 2020, for example, and even now in Minnesota where I live, there's still mask requirements in certain places. The hospitals in Minnesota, by and large, still require you to wear paper masks in the building. And as I've said before, the people that enforce this the most zealously are the receptionists. In my experience, especially the last three months of going to appointments with my 12-year-old, the doctors and the nurses don't say anything about it. They're sick of the requirement too. And of course, they know the truth, that the mask doesn't prevent the spread of anything really. But the receptionists are so, as soon as you walk in the building, the receptionist will not even wait for you to get to the desk. As soon as you walk through the door, do you have a mask? Do you need a mask? You need to wear a mask in this building. Why do they do that? Because they have no power. They are the bottom of the hierarchy in that social setting. But they have the power to demand that you do what they say. And so you may be a slave, but you're not a dog. But I can treat the people that come through the door as dogs, which gives me a feeling of superiority because I know I'm a slave. I'm the, the slave that takes off your shoes and washes your feet when you come in the house. I'm the lowest slave in the building, but I'm not a dog. And so I'll treat you like a dog, reduce you to a dog so that I can feel superior for just a moment. And then I just repeat that over and over and over. And I fall in love with that little feeling, that little endorphin release, the oxytocin that floods through my brain when I say, you have to wear a mask when you're in the building. And when I see you look at me that way, 
and I see you obey, it floods me with just a little hit of the sweet stuff. But that, that feeling only lasts for a moment because you comply with my orders and move on. Oh, but here comes another person. I get to say it to them now too. And over and over it goes. And up and up it goes, because of course it's the administration of the hospitals that require these things. It's not based on any science. It's not based on any valid interpretation of the data. It's simply done to enforce obedience, to break us down, to dehumanize us, to treat us as children, because we really do live in a kind of oppressive, overbearing, helicopter parent kind of state. We used to call it the nanny state, which is that the state treats us as children. You see this whenever you're pulled over by a police officer. They talk to you as if you're a child. And if you say, I don't want to wear my seatbelt, I don't need to. Or, well, this is my car, and what is in my car with me is none of your business. I don't have to tell you where I'm going or what I'm doing. I didn't want to drive the speed limit. There's nobody on the highway. I used my own judgment and discretion. Say those things to a police officer, and they immediately start talking down to you as if you're a child. Why do they do that? To belittle you? Yes. To make you feel like a child? Yes. To make you feel like you have no power in this situation. And whether it is by training or simply by personality, this is my experience in those instances, that your discretion and your judgment as an adult are immaterial. All that matters is you broke the law, and now I'm going to reprimand you as if you are a child who got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. And then I will punish you for exercising thought, will, discretion, discernment, good judgment, because you are not the law, citizen, I am. It's power. It's just the desire for power. One of the things that I've been interested in since high school, actually, because where I grew up at, on the Iron Range of Minnesota, in the city that I lived in, the police there were wholly corrupt, let's put it that way. Sometimes excessively corrupt, other times in a more benign, almost cartoonish sort of corruption. They would turn their lights on to run stoplights, for example, or they would travel through alleys rather than on the main streets so that they could speed. And God help you if you were walking in front of an alley when a police car came flying out of the alley. Wow. The number of times I almost got run over by a cop. They would pull up to our parties and shoot the keg and then drive away. They would throw kids up against the wall and kind of choke them while they held them against the wall and reprimanded them for what they were doing. All kinds of things like that. And were they ever reported? Yes. Were complaints filed? Yes. Was anything ever done? No. And so there was one cop in particular that I remember. And he was so rotund that once he got behind the wheel of the police car, he could not get out easily. And so when he was in a chase with another vehicle or somebody ran away from him, he would call back up and then sit there and wait because he couldn't get out of the car to chase. He was that unhealthy. He's also the cop that shot the kegs because he wouldn't get out of his car. He couldn't get out of his car easily. And so he would just roll down the window 
and do what he, and then say, go home. That's the way it was for me growing up. And then I learned as I got older that most of the police on the force in the city in which I lived were either bullies in high school or had been bullied in high school. And so it's always interested me how many police officers become a part of law enforcement because they were bullied or on the other side of the house were bullied or were bullies themselves, sorry. In fact, if you read Clockwork Orange, a little wrinkle in the story as it goes is that a couple of the hooligans who engage in all of this illegal, unlawful behavior, when they grow up, become police officers because that essentially gives them legal permission to continue to do what they were doing before. I've always been curious about that. And again, I have friends who are law enforcement. I'm not taking a dump on law enforcement or saying that as a whole, they're corrupt and evil. I'm not. I'm just raising a question more than anything, an observation, personal anecdote. So don't take that the wrong way. But it does raise the question for me, and it has since high school, like I said, of what is it that drives people to desire power? And in my experience, it is the feelings of powerlessness and being disgusted by that feeling and never wanting to feel that way again. And so you become almost a hunter for power. Or on the other side, you were a bully. You like the feeling that it gave you being a bully. And so you sought out other means when you became an adult to continue legally bullying people. Anybody who has kids, for example, knows what it's like when your child comes home and is in tears or upset because they got teased at school. Got teased about their name or about their hair, about what they're wearing. You name it, right? Kids are cruel. But the only reason kids are cruel is because at some point in their young lives, they discover that they can get an emotional reaction from another child by what they say or do to them. And I've been there. I've been a witness to when this has happened for the first time in several different instances. And the look of recognition, the light bulb going off above their head when they see the other child react negatively, emotionally, to something that they do or say to them, and then they lean into it and they do it even more, that's not something that you learn. It's something that we're born with. It's inherent in us, in my opinion. And it is the love of being powerful, of having power over other people. There's something about it that just sends shivers up our spine when we can get a reaction out of someone else, when we can cause them to react in such a way that it gives us a feeling of, oh, I'm in your head now. Or, oh, I did that. I got that response from you. I control you now. We love it. We're selfish. And the reason I bring up these examples is because in the church, for example, one of our $10 words is sin, obviously. Sin is a big church word. But what does that mean, sin, right? It's usually interpreted falsely as a moral degeneration, not doing good. God wants you to be a good person and do good things for other people. And when you don't, and you're a bad person and you do bad things, that's sin. No, that's not sin at all, actually. Sin is not a moral category. That's a false interpretation of the definition of sin in, in the Bible and in church history, actually. No, sin literally means, technically speaking, to be curved in on ourselves, 
But to put it simply, it means that we are selfish, we are self-centered by nature, we are self-interested, and we only care first and last about ourselves. And that selfishness is not limited to negative choices. As I've talked about, and you're well aware of from your own experiences, we do everything for selfish reasons. I'm friends with the friends that I have because selfishly, they make me feel good about myself. The things that I eat, I eat for selfish reasons because they make me feel good. Even if they're bad for me health-wise, I still eat them, like uh, the Chinese food I had yesterday. Oh, so good. But I know it's not good for me. Although nowadays, MSG is one of the least toxic things that I can ingest. But it's not good for me, I know that. And I'm only eating it because it gives me so much mouth pleasure. But I like it, and my family likes it. And so I suggest it because I know they're going to say yes. Is it selfish of me to do that? Of course it is. Do we all enjoy it? Of course we do. I train martial arts and teach martial arts for selfish reasons. It gives me great pleasure to do it and to teach it and to see the look on my students' faces when they love it too. Selfishness is not just a negative. It's a positive too. But it's still selfish. At root, it's all selfishness. And at root then, our selfishness is what drives us to crave power over others. Whether it be a pastor, a teacher, a coach, a boss, a parent, a spouse. In our heart, all of our decisions are made for selfish reasons. Even our decision to do something that is selfless, that's charitable, is done because it makes us feel good. And we know it's going to make us feel good. So we do it. And if we're praised for it, if we receive uh, awards for it or, or a reward for it, all the better. But we don't do it for the money. We don't do it for the accolades. We do it because it makes us feel good. And that feeling is selfish. Because if we didn't feel good, we wouldn't do it. Maybe once or twice, we'd force ourselves to go back and keep doing it out of obligation. But eventually, we'd come up with an excuse to not do that thing anymore not be around that person anymore because they don't make us feel good anymore. We're selfish. And rather than simply own that and admit it to each other, we hide from it because we treat it as a moral category. Well, I'm selfish. You're selfish. Okay, now what? Yeah, we're all selfish. It's not a moral category. It's who we are. Everything that we do is driven by selfishness. Now, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to try and leash that? Or are we just going to let it run free? And the answer is, we're going to let it run free <laughs> as much as possible. That's why we have laws. That's why we have law enforcement. That's why we have militaries. Because we're all selfish. And if you have something I want, I'm going to take it. Or I'm going to try to get it by a show of right. Or I'm going to try and get a law passed that gives me legal permission to take it away from you. But in the end, it's all selfishness. The desire to protect and defend and the desire to invade and overwhelm. It's all selfish. As Lord Acton said, power corrupts. And Robert Greene said that power is endlessly seductive. And yet Nietzsche said power developed to its utmost is happiness. The more power we crave, the more power that we get for ourselves, the more it's going to corrupt us. Why? 
Well, think about it. When you get what you want, don't you want more? And the more that you get, the more that you want. This is the problem with drug addiction. There's never enough drugs. In fact, the only time that you can ever say, I've had enough, is when you overdose and die. And yet, the more that you want, the more your desires, your cravings, the more your attention is turned toward getting more of the drugs. Does it matter that you've damaged and and destroyed relationships? No, give me more drugs. Does it matter that you can't hold down a steady job? No, give me more drugs. Does it matter that your health is completely broken and shattered and you're homeless, living on the streets, begging or doing whatever you need to do to get your drugs? No, give me more drugs. Does it matter that you're dead? No, give me more drugs. Do you enjoy doing the drugs? No, I don't. No, shut up and give me more drugs. Are you unhappy? Yes, I am. Give me more drugs. Drug addiction, in my own personal experience, is not dancing with your demon. It's your demon has you on a leash, and your demon is leading you around. And if you decide, I don't want to do this anymore, just like the cruel owners of pets who drag their animals down the street by the leash, choking them all the way, forcing them to go in the direction that the master wants them to go. That's what the demon of drug addiction does. It just drags you around, choking, kicking, screaming, pulling, doesn't matter. We have to have more drugs. Why? Got to feed the demon. If the demon's not happy, I'm not happy. Selfishness. And at some some point, the power of that causes you to degenerate to the point where All you care about is more. Give me more of a sense of control. Give me more of a sense that I have all of the choices and you have none. Until finally, those choices make the choice for you. It doesn't start that way. Again, power is endlessly seductive. It starts with, like I said earlier, Be sure to remind everyone who comes in the building that they have to wear a mask. It's for their own safety and the safety of the other patients. It starts off as an appeal to our better nature, but quickly devolves into wear this mask or you're not allowed to see the doctor. You're not allowed to come in the building. And that happened to me in the ER with my wife. That's happened to us with our children in the hospital. It's a means of control. It's a means of forced obedience. It's tyranny. And we're all capable of it, given the opportunity. Right place, right time, right person. Because it is seductive. It is intoxicating to be given power over others. This is why, when I was a kid, I don't know if they still do this. I think they do. But crossing guards. And what what did we call them? We called them something flag, like the flag. They were the, we were the ones who stood at the corners before and after school with the flag that made the cars stop so that the kids could cross the street. And everybody in class wanted that job, but there were only a, a certain number of, of spots open. And all of us wanted that flag. We all wanted that blaze orange <laughs> jacket that you wore with your blaze orange flag that had the word stop on it, Right. Because as soon as you stuck that flag out and stepped off the curb and those cars stopped, you as a 10 or 11-year-old, oh, 
It was amazing that you could just walk out into traffic and everybody would stop until you told them they could go again. But there were rules. You had to have a certain grade point average. You had to have a certain attendance record. You had to behave yourself in a certain way and not get in trouble in class. And of course, then I never got to be a crossing guard because flag bearer, I think. I don't can't remember what we called them now. So long ago. But I was never allowed to because I had good grades, but I just was a misbehaving child. Let's put it that way. I was just wanted to have fun and I wanted to have fun with other people. And it wasn't conducive to my teacher's um, curriculum and or uh, desire to uh, get uh, the um, topic for that hour across to the rest of the student body. My teacher was trying to talk and so was I. And only one of us could hold the class's attention. And so what ends up happening, of course, is that even as a child, you recognize this is an opportunity for power. And I like it. And I want it because of that feeling. And so no matter what level of society you're at, whether you're a homeless drug addict on the streets, whether you're an upper middle class couple, whether you're a dictator, the desire, the need for power is seductive. It is intoxicating. And once you taste it, you can't stop eating it. You want more and more and more of it, especially if you're unchecked, especially if there's no one around to say, hey, pump the brakes. This is, this is getting kind of weird. And if you're with others who want the same power that you want, well, that's how wars are started. And so in The Will to Be Human, for example, Silvano Arietti writes, if a man relied only on his own ability to satisfy his desires, power would be a synonym for personal ability. Any achievement would be the result of one's performance. But this is seldom the case. In order to bring about intended effects, people need other people. They must exert an influence on them so that the latter will help attain the desired results. There it is. If a man relied only on his own ability to satisfy his desires, power would be a synonym for personal ability. How did I achieve this? It was all me. It was my abilities. It was my power. But that's not always the case. That's seldom the case, he says. Instead, in order to get the desired effects to be satisfied. I need other people. And so in order to do that, I have to exert an influence on them so that they will participate with me in getting what I want. This is the root of every cult. (laughs) This is why the state is often a cult. You can call it a crime syndicate or a regime or whatever you want, but The state demands absolute obedience, unquestioning obedience to its authority. That's a cult. And it may not look like a cult, classically, cartoonishly depicted in TV shows and movies, but it's a cult. It has all of the trappings of a cult, all the rituals and symbols of a cult, all the language of a cult. And at root, it has the cult leader's mentality of I need this, it's for me, but you're going to get it for me and you're going to think that by giving it to me, getting it for me, 
you yourself are succeeding. You're getting what you need to. It's like the Manson family murders. Manson never killed anybody, but he was blamed for the murders. Manson was just a, a cult leader. It was the cultists who did the killings, the Tate LaBianca murders. It wasn't Manson, it was the cultists. But Manson was in jail his whole life, and the cultists were, I think, all released at some point. I think even Tex Ritter was released. Point being, not Tex Ritter, he's a country singer. Tex, is it Tex Watson? Anyways, somebody tell me, remind me, it was a Tex Watson, I can't remember. But anyways, the people that actually did the murders were released from jail. But the guy who ordered the murders, he stayed in jail his whole life. And again, I don't know how much of his nuttiness was an affect for the cameras because he loved the attention and how much of it was actually the fact that he was insane and mentally ill. But the point being, again, once we get that power over others, it becomes very cult-like very quickly. And if we can convince other people that by helping us get what we want, they're benefiting from it as well, well, then there's no limit to what we can accomplish except our own imaginations. And so going back to Nietzsche in On the Genealogy of Morals, he writes that every animal instinctively strives for an optimum of favorable conditions under which it can expend all its strength and achieve its maximum feeling of power. Every animal abhors, just as instinctively, every kind of intrusion or hindrance that obstructs or could obstruct this path to the optimum of power. Oof, that's a lot of words. Every animal is looking for the optimal conditions to expend all of its strength to capture its food, for example. Right? A cheetah has only so many calories that it can expend in the pursuit of an ibex, of its prey. And if it expends all of those calories, all of that energy, and doesn't catch that prey animal, it might actually starve to death. That's how many calories a cheetah will expend chasing an animal. So it has to make sure that the conditions for the pursuit of that prey are optimal. That's why animals pick the weakest of the herd because it's literally for them a matter of life and death. On the other hand, the cheetah then will do everything possible to avoid the intrusion or hindrance of those things that prevent it from getting its prey. And therefore, its whole point for living every single day is don't die today and leverage everything in your environment towards getting and capturing food. And what's interesting then about us at this point in our history, at least in, in the United States, is we've become so fat because we've enjoyed such an easy life that we no longer have to get up every morning and ask, how am I going to eat today? by and large, many of us. But at the same time, that being said, as of like the last couple of months, all the information that I've read says almost 50% of everyone in the United States lives check to check. Meaning you get injured, you get laid off, the economy goes one way or the other. That's it. You can't make your mortgage payment. You can't pay your bills. You can't afford to buy food. 
You can't put gas in your car. 50%, half the people in the United States are not really making it. They're literally barely making it, hanging on by their fingertips, living check to check. And so in a sense, what we do, which the cheetah does not do, is we delude ourselves and lie to each other about how close we are to destruction. And we do that because we are all participating in a cult. It's the cult of the state. Think about it. In where I live, for example, 40% of my income is taxed between the state and the federal. And yet, I'm told that they're $30 trillion in debt. What are you doing with our taxes? Well, obviously not using them for what you told us you're using them for. And we know that the economy is going off a cliff. We know that. We know that the society in the United States is disintegrating and imploding around us. We know that Western civilization is dying. The death rattle is evident. The signs are everywhere. I watched mainstream media the other night for the first time in forever, more than just a clip. I can't believe anyone would watch that. They're so obviously lying about everything that they say. And they censor people. They lie about information. They give half-truths at best. And they don't even act as if they're telling the truth. They act as if they have disdain for the audience. They're smug. They're callous. They're like peacocks. But I'm watching this thinking to myself, there's an entire generation of people that watch this every day and actually believe that what they're hearing is objective truth. And having watched that show, that news, quote unquote, show, I walked away feeling gross, like I was 10 IQ points lower for having watched that. And yet there are people that actually believe what they're being told on the news is true. And now I understand why no one is taking the economy seriously. Why no one is taking the conflict with Russia and this proxy war that we're engaged with, with Russia in, in Ukraine, no one's taking this seriously enough. We're all distracted by luxury and privilege. And so we've accepted the lie in order to maintain that luxury and privilege. But as a consequence, it's going to kill us, just like any drug addict ignores the consequences of their drug use. And so we're the only animal, so to speak, in all of creation that is trying to rebel against its programming. Like our job every day when we get up is help other people survive and live and thrive. But because we have it so good, so that even the poorest amongst us are obese, we ignore all the warning signs. Again, we're really the only creature in all of creation that ignores the threat when it's right in our face. And so like Carl Jung says, we may be able to suppress an impulse, but we cannot alter its nature. And what is suppressed comes up again in another place, in an altered form. But this time loaded with a resentment that makes the otherwise natural impulse our enemy. So, Going back to the analogy of addiction, because I think it's a, it's a nice picture because it's really the individual at the extreme of desire and therefore 
I think it paints a really vivid picture for us to reflect on. You can suppress the impulse to use if you're an addict, but you can't alter, alter the nature of the addict, which is the desire for that drug. So I can look at an opiate, for example, and recognize, okay, I can't put that in my mouth. I can't ingest that. Because once I go down the path, I'm not going to be able to stop myself because I have a real problem with opiates. I love them. That's my problem with opiates. But I can't alter the fact that I desire that feeling that comes when I ingest that opiate. And I can suppress the desire to take that. But then it's going to come up again. It's not going to look like Vicodin or Oxy or Dilaudid or opium or heroin or morphine or any of those. It's not going to look like that because I'm watching out for that. Instead, it's going to come, as Jung says, in an altered form. So maybe it's not drugs. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's someone propositioning me, attempting to lure me away from my wife so that I commit adultery. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe the allure of gambling carries me away from my family and paying the bills so that I squander my salary at the blackjack table because I love blackjack. Maybe it's eating. Maybe I stop going to the gym because I'm eating all of this garbage that makes me feel good. It, it anesthetizes me. It self-medicates me. But yet I don't go to the gym because, well, I'm stuffed with carbohydrates and I just want to take a nap and I'm not motivated to go work out. My addiction will pop back up in an altered form when I least expect it. And it's loaded, loaded with resentment that makes the otherwise natural impulse our enemy. And so we always have to watch out when that comes around and, and learn to recognize that it may wear different masks. It may wear a different set of clothing, but it's the same thing at root, which is, don't you want to make the pain go away? Don't you want to feel good about yourself, even if it's just for a little bit? Don't you think you deserve this? And of course, we want to agree with it because we want what it has to offer us. We know what it offers us. Such as my electrolytes here. Mouth pleasure. Heart pleasure. Mind pleasure. Physical pleasure. We want that feeling, even if it's just for five minutes, even if it's for 30 seconds. I know people who are addicted to nitrous, whippets, the feeling only lasts 30 seconds, a minute at the most. They'll go through an entire case of whippets, of, you know, whipped cream in an aerosol can or something. Because they just, they love that moment so much that their entire desire is to just keep repeating that over and over and over again. And we all do that in our own life. It's just like I said, it's just for an addict, it's pushed to the extreme. But it, again, it's that desire for control, that desire for a moment's peace, for that feeling that you have not only control, but that it's all going to turn out for the best for you. And that's what we're driving at when, like Arietti says, we try to surround ourselves with other people that help us achieve that goal. And of course, in a certain benign sense, 
when we get together with our friends and family, for example, maybe at the holidays or, you know, we're going to go out together tonight and, and just have a good time, have a couple of drinks, go to the theater, go to the bar, whatever, go to the game. We're all doing that for selfish reasons. And we're all there for the same purpose though, which is, I just want to feel good for a second. I want to not feel the struggle. I don't want to feel the pain. And for just a moment, just give me this for a moment. And of course, we all struggle. We all experience pain on a daily basis. We all have worry and anxiety about bills and the job and our relationships and our health, life in general. So let's all get together and let's make each other feel better just for a moment. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. But let's just not hide from the fact that if we didn't all get the same thing, all of a sudden you'd be looking around going, where's Sharon? What is Sharon usually comes out with us. Where's she? Oh, well, she said she had something that she had to do and, and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Oh, okay. And then on you go. You don't all stay home because Sharon can't go out with you. And on the other side, maybe Sharon didn't go out with you because she doesn't feel the same way the rest of you do about your little dates. And that was derogatory. I'm sorry. Little dates, your, your excursions into the city, for example, whatever they may be. We all do what we do for selfish reasons. And we all try to implicitly at least, and sometimes explicitly help other people feel happy so that they'll help us feel happy. It's kind of like an unwritten social contract. And that drive then for that, that need to have a little bit of say, a little bit of control over how I feel, how I think, over just life in general. We'll get together with other people and and share that experience together because we all want that experience, that feeling. And if we can find other people to kind of help us get there, perfect. And again, there's nothing that says you can't go to the bar alone or go to the baseball game alone or go for a walk alone or whatever. But sitting alone in a crowded space is a really lonely feeling for most people versus if I go with four or five people or 10 people or I get together with a whole crowd of people and we're all here for the same reason. So the next time you go to a game, for example, just look around and realize every single person in that arena is there for the same reason that you are. To just not feel the weight of life for the next two or three hours. To just be entertained, to enjoy themselves. But also know that they're going to have the same feeling after the fact that you do, which is, okay, that was nice, but now what? Well, now you got to go back to life and bills and responsibilities the pain, the struggle, all of it. That's why we're constantly trying to fill up every moment of our lives with pleasure, with entertainment, with enjoyment. Because that that feeling we get from that gives us that sense of, I have power over this. I have control over this. This thing, this person, this moment. And so, as Ariete says in The Will to Be Human, a person like Alexander the Great or Napoleon, for example, They could have had all of the wealth and sex that they wanted in the early period of their political life, but they instead continued to seek more and more power. The wealth was there. They could have had it whenever they wanted. The sex was there. 
could have had it whenever they wanted. But what they wanted more than wealth and sex is power. And that's why they were always on the move. That's why they were always mobilizing another army, another campaign. Think of all of the young men who are sacrificed to the ego of the power-hungry tyrant. Again, it's a cult. Because with the exception of a very few, in my experience talking with vets, for example, the idea of going to some other country and shooting other people that you don't know because you were told to by someone who's your superior, not that appealing. Not something that you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, yeah, I want to go over there and shoot those people while they're shooting at me for being in their country. It's not appealing. But the people that make those choices don't have to go over there and fight those battles. They're never going to pick up a rifle. They're never going to be in the line of fire. They're never going to watch their brothers get blown up. They sit in their chairs behind their desks with other people in suits in their chairs and they decide, you know what? I need more power. So let's go over there and exploit their mineral resources or let's go over there and exploit, exploit their human resources or let's go over there and just take that because we want it for a vacation spot. Well, how are we going to do that? Eh, we'll stage a terrorist attack or we'll say that they you know, invaded a, the country of our allies or we'll, we'll think of something. And then the media is unleashed to spread the propaganda that gets us all whooped up. And then people rush to sign up for service. They go through basic training and then they're sent off to go shoot at strangers who are then shooting at them for being in their country. And in the end, China gets the poppy fields anyways. And Ukraine is a hub for human trafficking in Eastern Europe. <clears throat> And what do we get for our troubles? And we're on the verge of nuclear war with Russia. Um, yeah, we don't benefit from that. Our taxes continue to go up, right? We're continually lied to. It doesn't seem like anybody who claims to represent us is actually on our side. It's as if the only reason that they're in politics is for the power, oddly enough. And of course, that's the same with all the useful idiots. They're just in it for their little taste of the pie. And as long as everybody gets a little bit of power or a lot of power, everyone's happy. That's why dissent is unacceptable. Disobedience is unacceptable. Even asking why is unacceptable. I've said this before. People that were marching in lockstep with me, who agreed with me throughout COVID, as soon as I criticized Ukraine, they were on me. Because for some strange reason, they believed that the government was against them in regards to COVID and the clot shot, but the government was for them in regards to Ukraine. Same government, different perspective. And that's why in my opinion, statism is one of the worst cults that you can be a part of. Being a statist, I think, is just blind obedience to the demon. And I think you can see this cult-like mentality when you ask someone who is a statist, why? Why do we pay taxes? Well, because the roads. It's like, really? That's, that's still all you have? We pay taxes so that the road... My roads are terrible all the time. And in Minnesota, there's a $19 billion tax surplus 
and the state refuses to give us back our taxes. And they keep promising new programs, and they keep starting new programs, and all of the programs, all of the bills that are passed into law, only seem to benefit the legislatures and the governor and those who pay for his campaign. Isn't that strange? That we never benefit from any of their promises. Once in a while, they'll throw us a bone, of course, bread and circuses and all that. But by and large, we to them are fodder. We're cattle. We're children. And we are to do what we are told. And if we don't do what we're told, if we do protest in a way that they find unacceptable, they will take to the podium on TV and they will scold us as if we are children. My governor in particular was a high school teacher. He loves to scold the citizens of this state as if we are children. It is so condescending. It's amazing. He's a pip, that one, our little petty authoritarian, Tim Waltz. But as Leopold Kor wrote in The Breakdown of Nations, to the extent that government is strong, the individual is weak, with the result that even if his title is citizen, his position is that of a subject. Exactly. We don't live in a constitutional republic. That's just for the kids. We don't even live in a democracy. That's just propaganda. We live in, at best, an oligarchy, but it's more like a technocracy with a smattering of Maoist communism and neo-Marxism thrown in and a whole lot of totalitarianism. In fact, at the recent uh, correspondence dinner, White House correspondence dinner, Joe Biden, what's left of him anyways, actually was making jokes about how he treats the media and what he actually thinks of his, his, his citizenry, the people that he supposedly serves. They openly mocked us at the correspondence dinner. It's all publicly available. You can watch it on YouTube. They openly mocked all of us and they don't care. Because they know they're not going to revolt. They're not going to rise up and put our neck in the guillotine. We can say and do whatever we want. They're not going to do anything. We just proved that for the past three years. We're not citizens. We're subjects. We don't have representatives. We have an aristocracy. We have crime families. We have the Bush crime family, the Clinton crime family, the Obama crime family, the Biden crime family. It's just a criminal syndicate. It's the mob. They just legitimize themselves in ways that the mob doesn't. It's all the same, though. We're subjects. And we have to do what they say. Otherwise, they'll send out the military or the police to subdue us and force us to do what they say. That's why we all pay taxes. We don't pay taxes because of any sense of obligation. We know we're being robbed. We know that taxation is theft. Taxation without representation. We have a little revolution you know, over that whole thing, taxation without representation. Well, guess what? Our representatives don't represent us, but we still pay taxes. The Boston Tea Party was over a 2% or 3% tax. I pay 40% in taxes. Where's the revolution? Not happening. Why? Well, because I can't get anybody to join me. That's why. And again, going back to what was said earlier, I guess I could storm the Capitol, but that wouldn't last very long. Be the world's shortest revolution. And I can't get enough people to join me to form a militia, a well-armed militia, a well-formed militia, as our constitution actually articulates. And as a consequence, 
I can say whatever I want for the most part because I'm benign. And you listening, you're benign. And the government knows that. And so they simply launch their propaganda campaigns, the mouthpieces in the mainstream media vilify and demonize us, making sure that nobody wants to even have the conversation, let alone entertain the thought that we're living in a totalitarian state, an authoritarian state. And so as Orwell said in 1984, we know, we know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. No one who takes power wants to give it up. We have people in the Senate and in the Congress who are in their 80s and have done nothing in their entire lives other than be a politician. And of course, the most absurd thing that I can hear out of regular people's mouths is, well, we got to do something about this. They need to have term limits. Okay, who decides that? Oh, they do. Mm, okay. It's like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Matt Gates want to pass legislation that forbids and prohibits members of the Senate and Congress from buying stocks. That's never going to go anywhere. That is a token gesture at best. It's all for optics. All of those people actually get their money from playing the stock market. All of them are engaged in insider trading all the time. They're breaking the law all the time. They don't care because who's going to stop them? Wall Street? No, they're controlled by Wall Street. They're owned by Wall Street. They're not going to do anything. But they float these bills out just for the cameras so that we can all go, look, they're on our side. They're for us. No, it's controlled opposition. It's all optics, smoke and mirrors. And so going back to the Don by Nietzsche, he writes, truth in itself is no power at all. Mm, truth all by itself is no power at all. Truth must either attract power to its side or else side with power, because otherwise it will perish again and again. This has been already sufficiently demonstrated and more than sufficiently. Ain't that the truth? My truth, your truth, the truth. Unless there's power by your side, your truth is nothing. It means nothing to anybody. That's why we've been reduced on purpose, by the way, to talking about my truth versus your truth. Because if we can't all agree on the truth, well, then we can never be united standing against untruth. And so we're fragmented into a million, million pieces of little truths. Well, my truth is all that matters. Well, continue to think that way and behave and act on that so that you're never united. You can never form an army. And therefore, you are never a threat to the powers that be. They're counting on it. It's terrible. It's horrible. But that's the world we live in because we have been reduced <clears throat> to these little nodes, these little atoms that just bounce off of other little atoms. And we call that society or culture. And we're always being asked, what's the next thing that I support? Tell me what the next thing is that I support. I need help. I can't think for myself. I need everything reduced to binary categories, good and evil, right and wrong, white and black, male, female, blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> Divide and conquer. And it's working brilliantly so far. As long as we're divided, it's easier to conquer us. This is plain as day. 
when we're united, well, we know how hard it is to conquer a group of people who are united. Look at what's going on in Paris right now. Look what happened in Holland with the farmers. All over the world, people come together and they unite in a common cause. And it scares the living hell out of the powers that be, the controllers. Because, of course, the power of the mob, as Nietzsche says, is the power of the leader. And when the mob turns against the leaders, the leaders have no power. And yet, somehow, it's like when I was in sixth grade and uh, we had these end-of-the-year projects. It was kind of like a League of Nations or Festival of Nations, that's what it was called. Festival of Nations, where every kid in the classroom, every child in the classroom got to pick a country, and then they had to do a report on the country. They had to prepare food from that country, dress in the common dress of the people from that country, and basically create kind of like your little area there by around your desk. And then all of the other teachers and all the other students and the parents would come and they'd walk around and they'd sample the different foods and ask you questions about the country that you represented. And you had to know everything. Like you had to know economics and politics and culture and traditions and stories, all kinds of stuff. It was fantastic. Mine was South Africa. Because in sixth grade, I had decided that apartheid was wrong. That's me in sixth grade, Don Riley. Apartheid is evil and it shouldn't exist. So I'm going to learn about South Africa and apartheid. And so I did. And what I couldn't understand in sixth grade was the fact that there were a hundred times more black people than Dutch <laughs> in the country. There was like almost, I can't even remember the number now anymore, but at the time it was like for every one white Afrikaner, there was like a hundred or a thousand Zulus, right? And I could never understand that. How did the Dutch maintain power for all those years when they didn't have the majority? They didn't have the majority power, the majority population. They didn't have the culture, but somehow they maintained power. And so even in sixth grade, I started to become aware of the power of fear, the power of propaganda. And yeah, in high school and college, as I learned about this more in different places in the world, it just struck me how easy it is to subdue a population of people with really the bare minimum of resources. Because I still hold that we are by nature slavish. And by nature, we want to be enslaved. We want to be ruled over. And we may not talk about it in those types of kind of raw terms, but we all want to be ruled over. We all want to be taken care of. We all want to be told what to do so that we don't have to take responsibility for our actions, our choices. And then what happens, of course, is at the front end of things, at the beginning of things, we say to that person, hey man, can you help me? Because I've got this problem and I don't know what to do about it. And I could really use your input. So you know what? Could you just kind of take charge of this? Because you seem like you have the skills and the abilities that are needed for this moment. And they do that. And maybe in the beginning, you're working together, right? Or maybe you're using each other. You're mutually exploiting each other in the beginning because there's a common need. But then the next generation comes along and they exploit that for their own benefit. And they start to consolidate power. 
and then the third and the fourth generation. And all of a sudden, within three or four generations, all of the power is in the hands of this minority people over here. But they were smart enough along the way to consolidate power around force and violence. So they've got all the guns and the cannons. They've got the media on their side. So they've got the attention of the eyes and the ears of the populace. And they start to engage in a campaign of propaganda and indoctrination that says to the majority, you are lesser than us. You need us because without us, chaos, the monster is going to come and devour you. You need us. And it becomes enculturated. And so even those who cry out, because there was an African National Congress, they had their own parallel government to the Boers. And yet even that, in its own way, was kind of controlled opposition. So yes, there was violence. Yes, there was bombings. Yes, there were, you know, uprisings here, there, and everywhere. But they were never significant enough to tear down the government that existed there. And I always found that a fascinating test case for tyranny. In that in our own homes, at our jobs, at school, wherever it might be, this desire to have someone else tell us what to do, to alleviate the need to take responsibility and accept the consequences for our choices is so appealing to us. This goes back to drug addiction. I don't want to deal with the pain of what's happening right now. So I'm going to take these drugs to make the pain go away for a moment. But then I come out of the drugs. I come down off that high. And the pain is still there. And the responsibility is still there. So are the consequences. And so what do I do to get rid of those consequences. What do I do to escape that responsibility and that pain? Take more drugs. And so why do we keep participating in a system of governance that we know is oppressive and repressive? We know it is of no benefit to us whatsoever. Because in the end, we'd rather simply accept it as it is, turn to it to say, can you take care of this for us too? Even if we know it's detrimental and destructive to our own well-being, we'll do that. In mass, we'll do that. And so when someone like myself or maybe you or others stand up and say, I think we need a revolution, it doesn't have to be violent. It could be a cultural revolution. It could be an intellectual revolution. It could be a spiritual revolution. Everyone just stares at me and goes, why would we do that? Right? It's too much trouble. It's too much effort. We might get in trouble. Are you sure that's not against the law? All of these questions come up. And the answer is always, of course, but this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't just. This isn't good. This isn't how we're supposed to live. And they look at their house, and they look at their cars, and they look at their vacation time, and they look at their job. And again, 50% are just barely making it. They're living check to check. Are you willing to give up your life to change the world for the better when that could mean no job, you could lose your house, you could be put in jail, you could lose your kids, you might end up getting divorced, you might end up being killed? Do you want to risk everything to change the world when everything, according to you, is, eh, it's good enough, right? I'm getting by, it's good enough. That's a hard sell right? 
But I'll conclude with this then from Solzhenitsyn because he, he knew a little bit about this stuff. In the Gulag Archipelago, Volume 1, it's a great book. I recommend you all read it. If we don't love freedom enough, and even more, we had no awareness of the real situation. We spent ourselves in one unrestrained outburst in 1917, and then we hurried to submit. We submitted with pleasure. We purely and simply deserved everything that happened afterward. And there you go. If we don't love freedom enough in our country, if we have no awareness of the real situation, or worse, we don't want to know what the real situation is in our country, if we hurry to submit ourselves and with pleasure, then we deserve everything that happens after that. When we all stay in our houses and we all follow the mandates and we don't push back and rebel against the masks or the vaccines or any of the other things that came with that, then we deserve everything that we get in 2025 and in 2030 and in 2045. We deserve it all. And it is coming. 1,900 food processing plants have burned down in the last year in the United States. 1,900 burned down, exploded. Two months ago, 18,000 cattle in Texas blew up in the middle of the night. It was reported on local news, and that was it. There's another chemical spill in the Ohio River last month. Wasn't reported widely. Made the local news, but that's about it. We're being poisoned. We're being killed. And it's all by design. And nobody wants to see and nobody wants to talk about it. And we all see what's happening. We all know. But we don't want to talk about it. We want to submit. Because we have to keep going because we're in a corner and we're barely making it from day to day. And so, as Solzhenitsyn says, when the monster comes and it starts to devour our kinsmen, our friends, our fellow warriors, our family, we deserve that. We deserve it. And when they're all gone and it's just us and the monster comes to devour us, we have no one to blame but ourselves for not standing up and fighting the monster when we had the chance. And so, <clears throat> that being said, I hope that in your own way, where you're at, you are forming your defense of freedom. And also, to the point of this episode, you are recognizing the psychology of power and how it can seduce one, even ourselves, into a position where we become tyrannical in our homes, our jobs, at school, wherever it might be. And how do we fight against that? How do we cage that desire? And how do we stand guard against it so that when it does come wearing a different mask or a different set of clothing, we recognize it and we repel that attack again also? Because I think part of conquering one's self in, in the stoic way of thinking is having to recognize and confront the truth about ourselves that we are selfish by nature we do crave power and all that it offers to us. Who doesn't? This is why we worship celebrity. This is why we blindly follow authority. We want what they have, or at least to live vicariously through them or get some crumbs from their table. 
how do we conquer ourselves? How do we engage with ourselves in such a way that we practice self-control and discipline and develop those as healthy habits? And how can we be satisfied with our health, with the food that we have, with our shelter and our enjoyment of life so that we're not constantly unhappy, we're not constantly depressed or anxious, we're not constantly asking, okay, but now what? What's the next good thing? What's the next thing that's going to give me happiness and alleviate my pain? Because, of course, again, everything worth having in life is on the other side of struggle. And that means that we got to go through pain. And so the entire culture is leveraged against us. The entire culture, all the apparatuses of the current regime are leveraged against us to convince us that pain is bad, suffering is bad, that we all need to just give up and give in and let the mommy and daddy state take care of us. They know what's best for us. But if we could all just start homeschooling, if we could all just step back and form our own cooperatives, step back and form our own communities and be activists in our communities, if we can think local and help each other locally and build our own economies and build our own social structures and our own culture, I think we would be so much better for that and so much stronger. But there's always the temptation towards power for individuals and groups. And it's something that we always have to watch out for then and be aware of. Because if not, again, it'll come and it will defeat us and we'll become tyrannical. And I think, again, morally speaking, spiritually speaking, that's not a good place to be. And so in the discussion today, I don't know if it made any sense whatsoever. Um, I hope it did. I hope it got you to think. And I hope, again, with Nietzsche and Jung and Arieti, that you are motivated to continue to study and learn and, and be active in your community and in your your fa- your family. Ugh, words are so difficult in the morning. <laughs> in your family, amongst your friends, with your coworkers, whoever it might be. Build those communities. Build those strong relationships, right, based on selflessness, based on charity and compassion, forgiveness, struggle together, bear each other's burdens and all of that. But just recognize, yeah, we're all selfish. And everything we do is, is for selfish reasons. But that doesn't mean that it has to derail us. It doesn't have to destroy us. We can harness that selfishness for good reasons and good means. We can strive towards good outcomes with our selfishness. But we got to work together to do it. We have to understand ourselves and understand each other to accomplish those things. Not lie to ourselves, not deceive ourselves into thinking that we're someone we're not. But just be open, honest, transparent. And lean into that. That's, I think, the best defense against tyranny. It's the best defense against the temptation of power is just to be honest with ourselves and be open and explicit with others about that, to set them free, to be honest with themselves. And maybe then the truth will come out and it's a truth worth standing on and building on and it's a truth worth living and dying for. So that being said, I thank you as always for listening Thank you to everybody on Spotify for subscribing. We're almost up to 800, I think, 800 listeners, followers on Spotify. So thank you. It's amazing. I appreciate all of you for that. Go over to Anchor FM and subscribe and hit the support button. Go over to the Warrior Priest podcast at WordPress if you want to get it in your email box. Otherwise, I'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.